Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Kenya Zuhuru Kenyatta to be sworn in today for a second term. And UN Security Council prepares to meet to discuss slavery in Libya. In economics news, new initiative aims to create 100,000 jobs in South Africa. And in sports news, FIFA vows not to tolerate racism at the 2018 World Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta is set to take the oath of office marking the beginning of his second and final term. The opposition has urged its supporters to attend a rival rally. President Kenyatta will preside over a deeply divided nation and a country experiencing its worst economic slowdown in 10 years. Sarah Kimani reports from Nairobi. Just over 60,000 guests will be at Kasarani Sports Stadium in Nairobi when Kenya's fourth president takes the oath of office. Kenyatta will be sworn in after two court battles and two presidential elections. While Kenyans are relieved that the swearing-in marks the end of a long political period, the political standoff in the country is ever expected to drag on. The opposition has termed Kenyatta's victory as illegitimate. Mali has delayed regional elections due next month to April next year in order to address dissatisfaction with the timing from armed groups. A statement by the government says the Minister for Territorial Administration, Timan Hubert Kolabali, met former rebel groups and pro-government factions who registered concerns over the vote's timing. The vote had been slated for the 17th of December. The groups, the former rebels of the coordination of Azawad movements and pro-government fighters, known as the platform, agreed on a roadmap to peace with the central government two years ago in an attempt to bring national unity after a 2012 separatist uprising in the north, which was followed by a jihadist insurgency. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has dissolved his cabinet as he prepares to appoint new ministers. A statement from the presidency says two acting ministers, Patrick Chinamaso for finance and Sambarashe Mumbegegui, for foreign affairs have been appointed to ensure the running of the country remains uninterrupted. Mnangagwa is expected to meet with executive heads who are known as permanent secretaries. Three civilians have been wounded in Burkina Faso after a grenade was thrown at French troops shortly before President Emmanuel Macron touched down for the start of his first Africa tour. The French president is embarking on a three-day trip of West Africa aimed at boosting France's regional influence, stemming the continent's migrant exodus and bolstering the fight against violent Islamist militants in the Sahel. Macron's visit include Côte d'Ivoire and Ghana.
And finally, Indonesian authorities have extended the closure of the airport in Bali for a second day because of fears that Mount Agong, a volcano on the island, might erupt. The volcano, the government is urging more than 100,000 people living in the neighborhood to move to safety. The BBC's Rebecca Heshke reports. Mount Agung is sending dark ash, gas and smoke thousands of meters into the air, making it dangerous for planes to land. Hundreds of flights have been cancelled, leaving tourists stranded. Last night, a glow of red lava could be seen in the crater. Authorities say it's a sign lava and molten rock is now at the top of the volcano and that a full-scale eruption could soon take place. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Kenya's president-elect Uhuru Kenyatta will today take the oath of office, marking the beginning of his second and final term. Kenyatta will preside over a deeply divided nation and a country experiencing its worst economic slowdown in 10 years. Can Kenyatta secure his legacy. Sarah Kemani reports. Just over 60,000 guests will be at Kasarani Sports Stadium in Nairobi when Kenya's fourth president takes the oath of office. Kenyatta will be sworn in after two court battles and two presidential elections. While Kenyans are relieved that the swearing-in marks the end of a long political period, the political standoff in the country is ever expected to drag on. The opposition has termed Kenyatta's victory as illegitimate. Here, Raila Odinga at an earlier interview with the SABC. It's not a question of being announced as the winner. That can be done any day. could have even been done before. But is it going to be legitimate? Indeed, Kenyatta has extended an olive branch to his main opponents in a bid to put behind the bruising political battle. I extend a hand of friendship. I extend a hand of cooperation. I extend a hand of partnership, knowing fully well that this country needs all of us pulling together in order for us to succeed. And Kenyans want us to succeed. James Shikwati is an analyst based in Kenya. I don't think it's going to be easy for the president to unite the country, but obviously he will make some attempts maybe to do so. Because remember, if we have to succeed in our economic projections, uh, we have to create some kind of impression that we are united. Kenyatta will also preside over an economy battered by months of politics and a drought that has left 3.2 million Kenyans in need of food aid. East Africa's biggest economy revised its economic growth forecast for 2017 downwards from 5.7 to 5.1 percent, but experts say it should bounce back. Shikwati again. I'm optimistic that it might just take off because part of the lessons we've been drawing from these elections has been how to to delink political contestation with usual economic activity. Kenyatta will be sworn in together with his deputy William Ruto. Ruto is eyeing to succeed his boss when the country heads to the polls again in 2022. That, analysts say, is a man to watch during his next five years. This election is about the people of Kenya assessing and making a choice on the kind of policies, on the kind of government, on who they want 
to run their government for the next five years. Matters of 2022, we will cross that river when we get there. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Kenya's political divisions look set to deepen today as security forces patrol the capital in preparation for President Uhuru Kenyatta's inauguration and opposition leaders urge supporters to attend a rival rally. Now, the Supreme Court nullified the first presidential election in August over irregularities. For the latest on today's inauguration, we are now joined on the line from Nairobi by our correspondent, James Shamayula. James, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Now, how is Nairobi this morning as President-elect Uhuru Kenyatta prepares to be sworn in for his second and final term in office? Well, in short, uh, it's um, a beehive of uh, activity, movement of people, some standing outside the stadium. And, um, you know, the stadium can only accommodate uh, 60,000 people. So the remaining uh, 40,000 have been locked out because there is no space. Otherwise, um, uh, it may collapse, I mean, although we don't expect such a thing to happen. But uh, the inauguration has attracted um, a huge number of people. And if the stadium fills to the brim, then uh, we should be talking of um, uh, 60,000 people or a little lower than that. But um, the picture you get when you look at the stadium, you find that so many people turned up as early as 4 a.m. just to ensure that they get entrance to, uh, uh, they, they go through the entrance to the stadium, but they were unable to do that. It had already been filled. So to, to Kenyans, it's a great uh, day for them because, as uh, Sarah Kimani said rightly, uh, people are now thinking, or politicians are now thinking of 2022. Uh, when uh, uh, Deputy President uh, William Ruto is, uh, God willing, expected to succeed Kenyatta. But for the time being, the focus is on him. Now, James, let's speak about the reaction from the opposition. There's been reports um, saying that the opposition plans to hold a prayer meeting today. What exactly is happening? Can you just tell us more about that? The opposition, unfortunately, is missing the event. Uh, when you look at the huge crowd, first of all, you you just realize through the calculation of your mind and the eyes that uh, uh, definitely uh, the country looks divided, and that is the main thing that uh, uh, President Kenyatta should do to unite Kenyans. However. Coming to your main question, the opposition has boycotted the uh, historic events saying that they don't recognize the presidency of Kenyatta and that uh, they are going to mourn 15 of their fallen uh, supporters who were killed by allegedly by soldiers and uh, pray for them and it will be just a day for prayer. And they are saying that had the president known, he would have joined them uh, to uh, mourn the dead, which is 
completely impossible. So what we don't know is what Raila Odinga, the leader of the opposition, is hiding under the carpet or what is up his sleeve. He may be using that uh, prayer meeting or morning uh, period uh, to surprise the entire world by probably, probably um, being sworn in there as the president because they had hinted to do that. So time will tell whether we shall have that uh, swearing in under the uh, curtain of mourning or uh, praying for the dead. James, what you were just talking about and the fact that uh, Rayla Odinga, as the opposition leader, has called Kenyatta's victory illegitimate. Do you think maybe at a later stage, if we're not surprised, as you put it today, um, that there might be, as uh, President-elect Uhuru Kenyatta has sent out a a reconciliatory message, um, do you think... At some point in time, soon, we hope that, um, you know, uh, Odinga's stance and the opposition stance would change and they would look at uh, reconciliation for the good of the Kenyan people. That's a very good constructed question that uh, prompts me to say this. It will take, I'm sorry to use the word I'm about to use, According to my experience for more than 40 years covering politics of Africa, especially Eastern Africa, it will take ages for Odinga to reconcile with a person that he does not recognize. He's a bitter man, a bitter politician, although they say politicians are always friends. This time I don't see that happening. The reason is simple. Odinga has been weeping throughout when he remembers the people who fell down uh, via the bullet of the security personnel. And he's never done that. He's a man who has liberated the country. He's a man who made uh, multi-party politics be introduced to the one that they're enjoying today. I don't think... To the best of my knowledge, I'm sorry if I may have offended some people because of saying that, uh, but that is the way I see things. However, however, it may be possible through emissaries, people that um, uh, Uhuru may send to Odinga to convince him to uh, come down and then uh, approach the president and then They forget the past and forge ahead. But again, I keep on asserting, not this time, not this time. Now, going back to the inauguration, which heads of state um, and, and government leaders are expected to attend the inauguration? We know that President Jacob Zuma is not going to be part of uh, the the um, celebrations today, but he has sent a representative, which is uh, International Relations Minister in South Africa, uh, Maite Mashabane. What other dignitaries are you expecting? We are yet to see them rolling using a high-tech cars under security protection uh, shortly. But uh, we were expecting, or rather we are expecting 
Kagame from Rwanda. Uh, we are expecting uh, the friend of Kenya all the years around uh, of Uganda, Yoweri Museveni. And then um, we are expecting uh, Magufuli, the president of Tanzania. Uh, my fear is that uh, even if Magufuli is coming, uh, he auctioned the Kenyans uh, more than, uh, I think, 1,000 uh, head of cattle that had crossed into his country uh, by herders. So I don't know if they will uh, uh, cheer him up when he speaks, I mean, the, the ordinary Kenyans, or they will forget what he did. But he's expected to be here. And we have other leaders. Uh, as you said rightly, uh, the president of South Africa is not coming. So that means a lot anyway, as far as I'm, I'm concerned in the Kenyan politics. What does it I mean, wish, James? Uh, Mr. Uh, pardon? Sorry, I was just asking you, when you say that means a lot with regards to President Jacob Zuma of South Africa not being there, what does it mean in Kenyan politics? You know, we don't have Mugabe right now. And uh, Mugabe's voice, when he spoke from uh, the Southern African region, uh, people were shaking and saluting him. He was one of the African, uh, I mean, he's one of the African liberators. So his presence, for, for example, would have made a big change. People cheering him and all that, you know, uh, crossing in the path with the, uh, the West and all that. But, you know, Zuma is a representative of the Southern African region, being a freedom fighter, being a respected African leader. Uh, he's held in esteem in this uh, region, I just wish he was around, or I wish he were here to represent the entire Southern African region because South Africa is a giant, economic giant, and a political giant of Africa. And with the freedoms that South Africa enjoys, people have been borrowing a leaf from there uh, to ensure that uh, such uh, things like protests, mass protests, you know, are allowed and all that. So his absence, I think, may be felt by the people present. James, let's speak about the possibility of uh, um, Sudan's President Omar al-Bashir coming to um, the inauguration of uh, President-elect of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta, and the call from the ICC stating that uh, they still need him um, to be arrested, especially when he arrives in countries that are signatory to the um, ICC um, laws and, and, and regulations. Is he coming, and what is likely to happen? Well, it is been kept um, under uh, the uh, behind the curtain. Uh, we don't know whether he'll show up, but you know, surprises do happen in such events whereby if a person like uh, uh, Omar Hassan Ahmed El Bashir of Sudan uh, shows up, then the ICC. Uh, International Criminal Court may uh, swing into action and ask the government to arrest him. Uh, There may be a lot of um, uh, movement, but, you know, that prompts the security to protect him. 
So we don't know whether he'll show up in the last minute, but he's a man of surprise, and uh, he may show up uh, or if he thinks that um, it's not a safe place to uh, step foot, then he may just absent himself. He's a very, very clever fellow. I've known for many years. So he reads the uh, situation before he ventures into uh, an area. Now, James, as we wrap up, uh, President-elect Uhuru Kenyatta is uh, um, be taking oath of office, um, basically marking the beginning of his second and final term. Now, he's going to be presiding over a deeply divided uh, Kenya. And during or whilst the country is experiencing its worst economic slowdown in 10 years, what do you think is likely to do with regards to um, the slowdown of the economy, um, being that Kenya is a very big hub in, in, in the East African region? Speaking of the hub, you are very right indeed. And that was uh, the fear by economists that... Um, the fighting that, um, I, I mean, the protests that have been taking place and um, the insecurity that has reigned in the country during, um, uh, before the election and after the election, repeat and the main election, uh, may bring down the country's economy uh, to uh, a dignity that may not be easy to feel so soon. I, I think he'll embark on um, trying to sell Kenya to the international community again so that investors uh, that had probably thought of um, uh, coming, they just come, and those that were here and scared should not be scared. But, you know, uh, I told you right at the outset that um, when you talk of division of a country, we are talking of the pattern of voting. When you look at the voting that took place, in some areas, voting did not happen. It will take a long time to bring those people closer to the secular authority and unite them. You know, look at the stadium. Look at the faces. I'm talking in an analogical, political way. Look at the stadium. Look at the faces. I can see some faces from some regions are not there at all, at all. And when you see that picture in your mind, and when you only see the strong uh, presence of people from maybe two regions, and we have eight regions, that says a lot. Let's face the reality. First priority of Kenyatta is to unite Kenyans. You cannot, you cannot, I repeat, rule people that have already sidelined themselves from you. You have to, in, to unite people from other regions, assuming or probably he has very strong backing from four regions. You need all of them, and that is the main work that we labor on to ensure that he does so. It will be a miracle. It will be magic. God is the one that may help him to do that.
but a long way to go, a ladder that is hard to climb, but step by step, he may achieve his goal of uniting Kenyans. Unity is the key thing. Forget about the economy. Unity. That's one thing that we are seeing conspicuously staring at us that Kenyans are not united. James, we'll have to leave it there for now. Let's hope that uh, President-elect uh, for a second term, Uhuru Kenyatta, will be able um, to unite the Kenyan people. Thank you so much for joining us. That was our reporter at Kenya, jo- James Shimangula, joining us on the line from the capital in Nairobi. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. The United Nations Security Council will convene today in New York after news reports and video footage emerged last week showing African migrants in Libya being sold as slaves. Permanent member France, which has taken the lead on the issue, says the meeting is aimed at creating a broader awareness on modern-day slavery while seeking a unified position from council members against such acts. Last week, the UN Secretary-General expressed horror at the reports and called on the competent authorities in the country to investigate without delay and bring the perpetrators to justice. Sharon Bryce-Peace reports. Libya's UN-backed government now says it's investigating the allegations first reported by CNN that hundreds of African migrants or refugees traveling through the country most likely trying to reach Europe had been bought and sold in slave markets. The UN special political mission in Libya has indicated that it too is pursuing the matter with Libyan authorities, while the council will be briefed Tuesday by the High Commissioner for Refugees, among others. French Ambassador François de Latre says his government wants council to break the model of human traffickers. We are working on uh, every conceivable um, measure, that was my second point, to fight against this uh, scourge, so we don't exclude anything. Uh, We'll hear also uh, the uh, HCR, UNHCR, Filippo, Grandi and uh, other briefers, so this is a very important meeting and we want this meeting we wanted this meeting to be held but also we wanted to have some results and to open some new perspectives in the fight against human trafficking in Libya and Italy. 
Italy, which holds the council presidency, has been among the main receiving countries of the more than 150,000 migrants attempting to reach Europe by sea each year. Ambassador Sebastiano Cardi. There was a telephone call between our foreign minister, Alfano and Le Drian, yesterday. Uh, Saturday rather, and they, you know, they, they together, of course, agreed to hold this uh, meeting. It's, of course, focused a lot on the um, uh, recent news on the, you know, slaves in Libya, so it's going to be a very important issue to discuss. The UK's Matthew Rycroft has urged the council to demonstrate unity on the matter. This is a huge issue uh, and we need to make sure that we stamp out modern slavery in all its forms, including human trafficking, uh, including in Libya. Reports suggest that human beings were being sold in slave markets for as little as $400 each, a matter the UN chief Antonio Guterres has condemned. I abhor these appalling acts and call upon all competent authorities to investigate these activities without delay and to bring the perpetrators to justice. And I've asked the relevant United Nations actors to actively pursue this matter. Slavery has no place in our world, and these actions are among the most egregious abuses of human rights and may amount to crimes against humanity. The United Nations has urged all countries to adopt and apply the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime while addressing migration flows in a comprehensive and humane manner. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. It's 8.29 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. For feedback on our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277 277- Nine six nine five seven nine three zero or WhatsApp on two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. Channel Africa from an African perspective. It is eight thirty Central African time, and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta to take the oath of office marking the beginning of his second and final term. Mali postpones the regional elections due next month to April next year in order to address dissatisfaction with the timing from armed groups. And eight Ugandan media workers have been criminally charged over a report saying Uganda's government was planning to overthrow the president of neighboring Rwanda. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you. And transforming the human rights situation in Darfur requires clear and distinctive definitions of sexual violence and adultery. As according to the Human Rights Section Chief for the region's UN mission, UNAMID, Aisha Daifin, who explained that separating these two societal issues encourages women to come forward with accounts of sexual violence without fear of being accused of adultery. In the last eight years, UNAMID's Human Rights Section, along with other international organizations and civil society, have bring about some major changes in Sudanese criminal law. Dyfin spoke with Setia Budi about her team's contribution. In terms of advocacy in the change of the law relating to sexual violence, in the last, I should say, eight years, several advocates in government, in the international community and in civil society have been advocating for a change in the Criminal Procedure Act relating to sexual violence. And the key element is to try and address sexual violence and the definition of rape separately from adultery. That's a major change in the Criminal uh, Law Act of Sudan. And it means that women can now come forward and bring a criminal claim in sexual violence before they wouldn't come forward because it will attract allegations of adultery. The second change is the level of awareness of human rights in the communities through the level of awareness raising, capacity building, um, targeting civil society organizations in the camps or NGOs or civil society groups. One researcher said that, and I'm just summarizing, it said that of all the things that UNAMID had done was this awareness of people's rights. And you can tell when you talk to people in the streets or in the camps, the way they articulate their issues have human rights dimensions. So that's another major change which will develop in time. The third major change is some structural changes which have come about through the national dialogue that was introduced by the government in which they considered the separation of the judiciary from the Attorney General's Office and the Prosecution Service. That structural change now means that there would be focus on the Prosecution Service, which was not getting the kind of commitment and resources that it needed. So we hope that with these structural changes and more resources will be given to both sides of the coin and the development of rule of law will improve in the country. Looking at the current human rights situation in Darfur, what are your main concerns? Well, my main concerns are are issues that have already been addressed in the new resolution of the Security Council mandating UNAMID's work up to next year. And they are also reflected in a lot of the Human Rights Council reports, especially the Independent Experts reports. And then I think I'll see these concerns in four areas. One is the improvement of or progress in the area of accountability and the reduction of impunity, especially for um, certain security services. 
The second is now that there is unilateral cessation of hostilities by the parties to the conflict, one hopes that there is sufficient progress on the ground for the lifting of the emergency laws, because that also would produce a conducive environment for the communities to get on with their work. And maybe the third area, and I think this is where the issue of addressing the root causes of the conflict comes in, and this area is uh, the situation of IDPs. Even though there's a reduction in the fighting between the parties to the conflict, we still have at least 2.1 million IDPs. And my concern is that, that we look into the root causes so that IDPs are able to return in a dignified manner and go back to their ancestral lands where that is possible or uh, decide what they want to do. And then lastly is perhaps look at how the government can continue to address the proliferation of small arms. There, It has started now, and we're looking at seeing how that is going to be managed going forward. Security Council Resolution 2363 reduces the number of troops and police by up to 30% by June 2018. Do you foresee any impact on addressing human rights concerns going forward? UNAMID has been an important force and role in in Darfur during the last 10 years. To draw it down significantly in accordance with Resolution 2363 will indeed make an impact. I think the issue here is how. And therefore we have to look at, you know, whether or not the government is able to replace UNAMID in those areas where drawdown takes place by uh, not leaving a gap for either criminals to engage or no services for the population in those areas. It's early days. We've just moved out of, I think, 11 sites, and we are now trying to see what the impact is for some of the areas we could see that it's difficult for human rights fact-finding missions to go further than the the cities or the town area without having a team site to either stay overnight. So there would be these kinds of impacts. But I think the most important is where the government needs to move in immediately and effectively and replace military with civilian institutions so that they can begin to work on rule of law issues and human rights. That was Aisha Dyfen, Human Rights Section Chief for the UN Mission in Darfur, and she was speaking to Setia Budi. Amid 16 days of gender activism, activism commemoration, Malawi is being urged to eradicate all forms of early marriage which are said to be affecting the upbringing of a girl child. The call from human rights activists comes at a time when the literacy rate for men is about 74% and for women 57%. George Mango reports from Blantar. Malawi has one of the highest child marriage rates worldwide. One in two girls will be married by their 18th birthday, with some girls being forced to marry as young as age nine, according to the Human Rights Watch. Further research in South Sudan, Tanzania, and Zimbabwe shows that the absence of comprehensive national strategies on child marriage undermines effectiveness of government's efforts. 
It says there is no solution for ending child marriage and authorities are asked to make a commitment to a comprehensive change that includes legal reform, access to quality education and sexual and reproductive health information and services. Many factors contribute to child marriage such as poverty which is commonly cited by family members who see marrying their daughter early as a means to economic survival with one less than child to feed or educate. With the 16 days of gender activism underway, many girls had these viewpoints as to how they are or have been victimized. I got a boyfriend who could look after me because my parents are poor. I was forced into marriage in the end. Since then, I did not have chance to proceed with school. I did not go back to school after marriage due to lack of fees, child care, flexible school programs, and the need to do household chores. In the end, my husband abandoned me and left children without any financial support. Between 2010 and 2013, 27,612 girls in primary and 4,053 girls in secondary schools dropped out due to marriages. During the same period, another 14,051 girls and 5,597 secondary school girls dropped out because they were pregnant. UNICEF estimates that without progress to prevent child marriage, the number of married girls in Africa will rise from 125 million to 310 million by 2050. In September 2015, African leaders joined other governments to adopt the UN Sustainable Development Goals SDGs, which include a target to end child marriage in the next 15 years. But Agnes Odiambo, Africa's women's researcher at the Human Rights Watch, recently said Africa's human rights treaties on women's and children's rights agreed to by African states explicitly state that the minimum age of marriage should be 18. Malawi, likewise, many African countries have multiple legal systems in which civil, customary and religious laws overlap in many cases contradict one another. Beliefs about gender roles and women and girls subordination underlay many customary practices such as payment of a dowry or bride price which perpetuate child marriages. A recent 20-page Human Rights Watch report ending child marriage in Africa opening the door for girls' education, health and freedom from violence published last year details how child marriage has dire lifelong consequences. Currently, Minister of Gender, Jean Kalilani, has called for stiff penalties to deal with men who impregnate girls and deny responsibility. George Muhango. It's only about two months to go before the Winter Olympic Games kick off in South Korea, games which will unfold amidst growing tensions with North Korea. Aggressive rhetoric coming from Pyongyang and from Washington, D.C. makes many nervous. At one point, the French team even questioned their participation, but the hosts are confident they can keep the game safe. Danny Savage reports. I'm at the ice hockey venue for the Winter Olympics in Gangyeong in South Korea. Training on the rink at the moment is the South Korean Paralympic team. Now with just over three months to go until the competition begins, the facilities are being used constantly by athletes from all over the world. It's an exciting time here, but it's also a worrying time with the relationship between North Korea and the rest of the world at a new low. There's talk of war. 
So how is that affecting the atmosphere here? Half an hour's drive away in the mountains around Pyeongchang is another part of the venue, a terrifying-looking ski jump. There's no snow here yet, but hopefuls from the German ladies' team are still going for it, jumping onto an artificial grass surface far below. So how long are you here for? Just until Saturday. Yes. These young women aren't worrying about the politics. They just want to compete. Yeah, I hope I uh, can qualify for the Olympic Games and I'm very excited to jump here again in winter. It's very special. I have been here for the World Cup last winter and I liked it here very much, so I'm happy to be here and hope to come back in winter. The facilities are great. The setting is beautiful. But South Korea's unpredictable neighbour is making some competitors nervous. At one point, the French team questioned whether or not they were going to come. Any easing of tension in this region will do these games a lot of favours. In the nearby Games headquarters, I met the Secretary General of this Winter Olympics, Yo Hyung Koo. He believes the competition will not be touched by concerns about war. He says this is about peace and reaching out to other countries who may not be allies. We are aware of geopolitical tensions. The Korean government is working and planning for the safest games to ensure that everyone is taken care of. We are as open with our partners as possible to ensure safe games. Next is Han, next player to skate as North Korea from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Taehyung Yom Yusik Kim. Just a few weeks ago at a figure skating competition in Germany, the North Korean pair did very well. Ryan Tae-ok and Kim Joo-sik did enough to qualify for the Winter Olympics. But it's still not clear if Pyongyang is going to send a team to the Games. That report by the BBC's Danny Savage. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabi Soluhoku. Thanks Lulu and good morning. The price of Bitcoin in Zimbabwe has soared to a record 17.875 on the local exchange as investors continue to seek a safe haven for their monetary trapped in the banks. For most investors around the world, Bitcoin is a volatile and highly speculative bet. For Zimbabweans, however, the cryptocurrency seems to offer rare protection from fears of a return to hyperinflation on the financial implosion. The Bank of Zambia says the delay in reaching a conclusion for an aid program with the International Monetary Fund is putting pressure on the Guacha currency. Zambia and the IMF agreed in October to chart a new path towards debt sustainability after the global funder delayed the conclusion of talks with Zambia, saying it was at high risk of debt distress. 
South Africa has plunged deeper into junk ratings territory and its fiscal situation is worsening. Some investors are, however, undeterred, choosing to buy its bonds cheap and pocket one of the highest yield premiums offered in emerging markets. S&P Global Ratings downgraded South Africa's currency, the rent debt to sub-investment grade on Friday, and pushed the foreign currency debt deeper into junk territory, while Moody's put the country on review for a downgrade. Although widely expected, the downgrade by S&P sparked a temporary sell-off in bonds. Aviation expert Lyndon Barnes has described as progressive the proposed measure between two independent South African aviation groups, Airlink and SAFA. The two groups will apply to the Competition Commission for approval to merge under the Airlink group of companies. The airline says the measure would make air travel accessible and affordable for customers across the Southern Africa. Barnes says the proposal is a great idea. Mergers and acquisitions are things that happen naturally in all sectors of industries. Initially, what they've been saying is, look, you know, we're going to get together. Airlink is going to to acquire Safair, but they're not going to actually merge their operations. They're not going to put the two airlines together. They're going to continue to run the two airline divisions, if you like, as separate entities. Meanwhile, South African motorists have to deal with another steep increase in fuel prices next week due to the rent's weakness and rising oil prices. The Automobile Association says an audited fuel price data that the Central Energy Fund released earlier this month indicates that South Africans can expect to pay 74 South African cents more for a litre of petrol, while diesel price is set to go up by around 63 cents a litre. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.87 in South Africa. It's at 10.28 in Botswana and at 10.8 in Zambia. It's also trading at 75 pence to the British pound, 83 cents to the euro. Gold trades at $1,293, platinum $945 pounds. The price of brand crude oil is at $63.63 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoko for Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour, we begin with football news. Well, football governing body FIFA president Gianni Infantino vowed to crack down hard on racist incidents when Russia hosts the World Cup next year. Racism became especially pronounced in Russian football with the influx of foreign players that occurred after the Iron Curtain fell and the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Brazilian striker Hulk said he had monkey chance at almost every match when he led Zenit St. Petersburg to a title and two second-place finishes between 2012 and 2016. Infantino says the 2018 World Cup will be the first at which referees will be allowed to halt or even abandon matches should anything similar happen during the matches. And Nigeria Super Eagles coach Genodro has been paid his full salary for November and December. Disclosing this yesterday, President of the Nigeria Football Federation, NFF, 
Amuju Pinnick said the Franco-German coach has also been offered a two-year extension to his contract with the Super Eagles. Pinnick, while speaking during the unveiling of the unique campaign to fly 100 lucky fans to watch the Super Eagles live at the 2018 FIFA World Cup in Russia, said the football governing body is keen to keep coach raw to continue his great developmental work with the senior national team. The CAF executive committee member also said the NFF was keen to tidy up all gray areas surrounding the new deal offered to Raw in order to forestall an imminent poaching from Germany and France, who he claimed are monitoring the progress of the former beginner Faso coach with the Super Eagles. On to rugby news. Tests will return to Australia's Gold Coast next year as the Wallabies host Argentina with Sydney and Brisbane, the other rugby championship venues announced. Michael Chaker's men will kick off the 2018 campaign against New Zealand in Sydney on the 18th of August before they face South Africa at the Suncorp Stadium in Brisbane on the 8th of September. International rugby will then return to Gold Coast for the first time since 2014 when the Wallabies hold, host Argentina to complete a back-to-back test on Queensland soil on the 15th of September. The Springboks will move to, from Brisbane to Wellington a week later when they face the All Blacks at the West Park Stadium on the 15th of September. And the Kenya National Rugby, seven, rugby Sevens team is en route to Dubai League of the 2017-2018 season of the World Sevens Series that kick off this weekend in the Emirates City. The team is targeting a minimum of 30 points in the first two legs of the World 7 Series, which begins with the Dubai Sevens. Kenya's rugby team stand-in coach and captain, Oscar Ayodi. We have a series uh, target of 100 points, which we've set before and we haven't achieved thus far. So going to Cape Town, Dubai, we are trying targeting 30 points so that we can surpass the 100, uh, 100 points in the, in the long run. Messages of condolences are continuing to pour in for veteran SABC television and radio sports commentator Tebo Manyapelo, who died on the 23rd of November. 50-year-old Manyapelo, shot to fame as an anchor for the Mutsuiding Breakfast Show on Mutsuiding FM at SABC. This is how he is remembered. Manchester United SABC Sport remembers the legend. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa Kenya's 
President-elect Uhuru Kenyatta to be sworn in today for a second term and UN Security Council prepares to meet to discuss slavery in Libya. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today.